Well, I would ask you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and really just the last verse of Revelation chapter 12, verse 18. And then we're going to read through the first 10 verses of chapter 13. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 18, and we'll be reading through verse 10 of chapter 13. And as our brother Kevin has done for us so well, if you're able, please stand with us out of respect for God's Word this morning. The dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his authority, his throne, and great authority, his power, his throne, and great authority. One of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter boast and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. And it was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All of those who live on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. It's a weighty passage, isn't it? There's a lot in there that is shocking and jarring about an end times reality, even a dictator. And it's true that for millennia, dictators have known that the best way to control people is through religion. You see, it's not just political power that's used, it's religion that's used. This is why throughout History, dictators, uh, those who desire absolute control over the population over which they have authority, well, many of them have pre presented themselves as divine. This was true in the Roman Empire. So the Roman emperors, they began just as political leaders, but it didn't take them long to figure out that they needed to present themselves as more. And so the emperors began to do that. They began to present themselves as divine and order people to worship them as divine. And those who refused to worship them were severely punished. Many were put to death, and that form of totalitarian control has come down through the ages, and it still exists in our own day. Uh, perhaps the most disturbing example of that continues to be the nation of North Korea. In North Korea, the citizens of that nation literally worship their leader. They call him their great leader, Kim Jong-un, and they worship him as a god. Some have called this religion Kim Jong-un-ism. North Korean children sing to him. They hold vast rallies with tens of thousands of people in attendance, all praising Kim Jong-un for his leadership. And even though much of the population is on the brink of starvation and they lack any, uh, any semblance of freedom, there's no indication that anyone's ready to overthrow his leadership. It seems that he has kind of a, a perfect balance of fear and love among the people that he leads. And he's done that by combining political power and religious power into one person himself. And through that mechanism, he has absolute control. Now, 
it's a scary thought. It's a scary thought, but the Bible actually teaches that the time is coming when much of the world will live under that kind of authoritarian control, the very same kind of authoritarian control. So over the next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 13 uh, over the next two Sundays, and we're going to study a, uh, this passage which teaches us about an end times leader known as the Antichrist or the beast or the man of lawlessness who will one day appear on the world stage and he will completely take over the show. How will he do that? He will be empowered by Satan who will give him power and a kingdom and authority. And that authority will be absolute. And it won't just be political authority. It will also be religious authority because he will likewise demand that all will worship him as God. He will control every facet of life. He will demand worship. And he will brutally punish those who refuse to worship him. Now, again, that's a scary thought. You think about it. But as you go through the chapter, as we go through the chapter this morning and next Sunday, I do want us to be encouraged that despite the blasphemy of the Antichrist, God is sovereign. And we're going to see that, that ultimately it's always God who is in control. So the Antichrist will exalt himself as God. He will blaspheme God. He will persecute the people of God. And yet he will always be under the control of God because God is the true king and God is sovereign. And our God is the one who works all things for his glory and for the good of his people. So we're continuing to work our way through the book of Revelation. We keep coming to chapter after chapter and the, the, the vividness and the details, the uh, just kind of the weight of this book continues, in my opinion, to increase as we are marching on towards what will ultimately be final judgment in chapters 15 and 16, and then there will be other visions that we see telling us how all of history will unfold. Recently, back as far as chapter 11, verse 15 to 19, we, we saw the, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And we're now in the interlude between the blowing of that seventh trumpet and the pouring out of seven bowls of God's wrath, kind of the final expression of his judgment that will come, and that will really be the impact of the seventh trumpet. But now in this interlude, which is chapters 12 and 13 and 14, we see several visions, and you can count it up different ways based on how you're looking at it, but several visions that instruct and warn and encourage God's people. So Two weeks ago, we were in Revelation chapter 12, and we saw that there were, there were three visions there. They're all interrelated, but the main theme of chapter 12 is this, that the hostility that will be evident between God and Satan at the end of times, this, this final great kind of um, uh, apex of conflict, well, that conflict is an ancient one. It goes all the way back to the conflict between God and Satan in the Garden of Eden. We saw there that Satan is going to try to destroy the people of God, but we saw once again that God's people will be protected from ultimate harm. And when we say ultimate harm, we don't mean they're not going to suffer and we don't mean they're not going to die. We do mean that their souls are safe with God and Christ and they will make it to heaven because Jesus loses none that the Father has given him. Well, now we're in Revelation 13. There are two more interrelated visions. There's a beast from the sea. That's really the first 10 verses, a little bit of chapter 12. And then there's the beast from the land. We'll see that, Lord willing, next week when we look at verses 11 to 18 of this chapter, 
We're going to start by looking at the beast from the sea this morning. Again, this is the Antichrist. This is the, the great end times world leader that the Bible tells us over and over in books like Daniel and in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation is coming and gives us all kinds of details about what he's going to do. And yet we're going to dive as deep as we can into understanding that the Antichrist is not just a, a single figure. The Bible tells us there have been many Antichrists throughout history, but the capital A Antichrist is the one to come. And we're going to work through scripture and try to understand that as well. Now, we were first introduced to the beast in chapter 11, verse 7. There we saw the beast. He appears out of nowhere in the book of Revelation, but he kills the two witnesses who we said were end times kind of prophetic figures that will be at work at that time. Now, in verses 1 to 10, we learn a lot more about the beast. A lot more is given to us in terms of details. Here we see that the Antichrist is going to be marked by blasphemy, ultimately declaring that he is God and, and telling everyone that they must worship him as opposed to worshiping the God of heaven. And we're going to see that he will ruthlessly rule over the world. But again, we will see God's sovereignty. If you're taking notes this morning, there will be three points from Revelation chapter 12, verse 18 to chapter 13 and verse 10. First, we're going to see the description of the beast. We're going to see that in chapter 12, verse 18 to chapter 13, verse 3, the first part. And then we're going to see the worship of the beast. We're going to see that in the second part of verse 3 to verse 4. And third, we're going to see the rule of the beast. We'll see that from verses 5 to verse 10. Look with me at that first point, the description of the beast, chapter 12, verse 18, to chapter 13, the first part of verse 3. The dragon stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority, and on its heads appeared, excuse me, one of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. So the last verse of chapter 12, what do you see? You see the dragon. Who's the dragon? That's Satan. That's what we discussed when we studied the chapter together. He's standing on the edge of the sea as if to summon henchmen from the waters of the sea. That's a very evocative picture because what you see next is you see two beasts arise. We're looking at the first beast this morning. What does Satan want? Well, he wants to destroy the people of God. You look at verse 17 of chapter 12. He's out to kill those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. And so the first to arise, the first beast to arise to help Satan in his plan is this beast from the sea. The word translated beast there, it refers to a wild animal, kind of a vicious wild animal. So you're not talking about a domesticated dog or something like that. You're talking about a ferocious wild animal. The word reveals the violent and savage nature of the beast. He's out for blood. And the description of the beast is terrifying. So look again at how he's described. He has ten horns. Now you should have heard ten horns when we read through Daniel chapter 7. He has ten horns and he has seven heads. And on the horns are ten crowns. And on his heads are blasphemous names. Now, we don't have to wonder what the seven heads refer to because Revelation chapter 17 actually tells us exactly what the seven heads refer to. So take your copy of God's Word and turn just a few pages over to Revelation chapter 17, and I want you to look at verses 9 to 10. 
Here, John is seeing a woman, a great prostitute, seated upon the beast, and God here gives him the understanding of what this vision means. The angel tells John this interpretation of the beast's seven heads. Verse 9, this calls for a mind that has wisdom. What a wonderful thing to remember as we study the book of Revelation together, that this is hard and we need God's wisdom because no one has this completely figured out and we need the Holy Spirit to help us. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings. Five has fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. When he comes, he must remain for only a little while. So you have seven heads of the beast. They represent seven mountains and they represent seven kings. Kind of a dual focus there. So what do the seven mountains represent? Well, once again, commentators disagree with one another about the right way to understand that. But I agree with those commentators that understand this reference to seven mountains to be speaking of the city of Rome, which was built upon seven hills. I think it's a pretty direct reference to that. Now, the reference to the seven kings is more difficult. We'll go into that in more detail when we get to Revelation chapter 17. And I'm grateful for additional weeks to study that portion of God's word. For now, suffice it to say that the seven heads of the beast, they represent the power of the Roman Empire. And remember, what is the Roman Empire doing as Revelation is being written at the end of the first century? Well, through Domitian, they are persecuting actively the church of Jesus Christ. The political power of Rome is at work doing this vicious act of attacking the church. So it represents the power of the Roman Empire, which was ruling in brutality. But we're going to say more about this because the beast doesn't just represent a political force. It's very clear from Scripture that the beast also represents an actual person, an actual individual. Now, the idea that the beast represents the power of Rome, it does make sense in light of what John says to us in verse 2. So look in verse 2 of chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 2. He says, the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, those animals, leopard, bear and lion, they're significant. Why are they significant? Because if you were listening when we read through Daniel chapter 7, you heard those same beasts being listed there. And those beasts have a significance, and they stood for the empires of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. So we're seeing in prophetic literature that beasts represent political forces, empires, kingdoms. And the beast that John sees in Revelation chapter 13, it combines all of the elements of these first three beasts. So there's this lion-like power you see in Babylon. And there's this savageness you see of the bear in Medo-Persia. And there's a leopard-like speed and viciousness to Greece because Alexander the Great moved with great rapidity as he conquered much of the known world in his day. Actually, the beast that John sees rising from the sea in Revelation chapter 13, it's also similar to the fourth beast that Daniel saw back in Daniel chapter 7. Both beasts were hideous. Both of them had ten horns. And that makes sense because both beasts represent Rome, the power of Rome. Rome was unknown to Daniel, but Rome was known to John. But there's more we can say about the beast. Notice that the beast rises out of the sea. So verse 1, where does the beast come from? He rises up out of the sea. Well, 
What does the sea represent? Well, it's possible that it represents kind of uh, humanity, right? The peoples of the world that uh, they're called waters at times. You'll see that in Revelation chapter 17 again. But I don't think that's what it's talking about because in the Jewish mind, the sea was a place of evil. It was a place of chaos. And it makes sense that this beast would be coming out of the sea because in Revelation chapter 11, we were taught where does the Antichrist himself come from? He comes from the abyss, the abode of demons, a place of great evil. Second, notice that the beast has blasphemous names on its heads, and that makes sense that the beast would have blasphemous names on its head. Why? Because if it is, at least in this point in history, representing the power of Rome, what are the Roman emperors doing? They're declaring themselves to be God. They're saying, you need to worship me. They're committing great blasphemy by claiming to be God. And then third, notice that there's a great similarity between the description of the dragon, who has seven heads and ten horns, and the beast who has seven heads and ten horns. And that makes sense because there's, a, there's a, a real connection between the two. Who is it that gives the beast the kingdom and the power and the authority, the throne? It's the dragon. In many ways, the beast is going to actually be kind of the personification of satanic evil on the earth. And finally, notice that the beast will be wounded. Did you see that in the first part of verse 3? It says, one of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. So in some way, the beast is going to have the uh, appearance of a wound. Uh, it's a fatal wound. People are expecting the beast to die, and yet it will be healed. And we'll see when we study the second part of verse 3 that that healing, perhaps miraculous healing, is going to completely mesmerize, amaze the world to the extent that they're going to want to follow the beast and do whatever he says. Now, we've done a lot of work at this point, but we're to the point that we can really kind of flesh out what, is, what do we mean when we see this word beast? What are, who exactly is the beast? Well, it seems pretty clear from Daniel chapter 7 and from Revelation 17 that the beast in John's day represents the power of Rome, this empire who was mercilessly persecuting Christians and putting them to death, even as John writes Revelation. It also seems clear, though, that the beast represents more than Rome. Did you notice that, that as uh, John is describing the beast, he describes him using the leopard and the bear and the lion? Some of the same characteristics of those other more ancient empires that transferred into Rome. Well, those, those same powers, it seems, are related to the beast uh, it seems that in a very real sense, the political forces throughout history, empires and kingdoms, have been, have been manifestations of the beast as they have opposed the plan of God and they persecuted the people of God. So in a very real way, Egypt, which enslaved the people of God, the people of Israel, well, they were a manifestation of the beast. And Babylon, which took the people of Judah into captivity, that's another manifestation and Medo-Persia and Greece are more manifestations of this beast as they likewise afflicted the people of God. Again, in its essence, the beast is political power in opposition to God and to the people of God that exalts itself. And the beast is also rulers of those powers. Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC was the ruler of Greece he went out of his way to put to death the people of Israel. He mercilessly slaughtered Jews who would not conform to Greek culture. He's a manifestation of the beast. The beast is the Roman emperor Nero, who mercilessly put to death Christians in the vicinity of Rome during his reign of terror in the 60s AD. 
The beast is really any great world leader who has set himself in opposition to God and to the people of God in order to oppose God's purposes in the world and exalted himself to a place of worship. You can think of someone like Joseph Stalin who imprisoned thousands upon thousands of Christians and put them to death. You see, the Bible tells us that many antichrists have gone out into the world. Many. Most especially, though, and this, I think, is the heart of what we're seeing in Revelation 13, most especially 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 10, there Paul, the Apostle Paul, fills in our understanding about the beast, which he refers to as the lawless one. So listen to Paul's description of the lawless one. Paul here lets us know that the beast, this lawless one, will be an evil end times leader who will rule the world and blaspheme God and assault the people of God. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 to 10. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, that's the day of the Lord, kind of the, the ending of human history, will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this and you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he's out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based in Satan's working with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders serving the lie. And with every wicked deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. Friends, this lawless one, this man of lawlessness, it is the beast. Both are marked by monstrous blasphemy. Both are end times figures. Both have been fueled by Satan, and both refer to a ruler of a world empire, which according to Revelation chapter 17 is going to be something, at least in the spirit of a reborn Roman empire, there's going to be something there. So think about it this way, just as Adolf Hitler, uh, the person, is inseparable from the Nazi Third Reich, the political power, he's the head, the leader, but he's inseparable from, you can't think with one without the other, in the same way the man of lawlessness or the beast is going to be the head of a end times worldwide satanic government that will oppose God and murder the people of God. And he will do so until the Lord Jesus puts him to death. Keep in mind that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is not apocalyptic literature. It's an epistle where the Apostle Paul is speaking to us about things that will happen. So that's the description of the beast. The beast is the political power of the state in principle in opposition to God and the people of God, which will one day manifest itself in a worldwide empire that is satanic in origin, and that is opposed to God and will be led by the Antichrist himself at least until Christ returns and then the true king arrives. Let me make one observation before we move on. Satan is always at work among the nations of this world. Satan is not on a mountain somewhere hoping that bad things will happen Satan is active along with his demons at work. He's moving behind the scenes to accomplish his purposes, 
of opposing God and opposing the people of God. So look at verse 2. Who is it who gives the beast his power and throne and authority? Who gives the beast that? Right, it's the dragon. Who's the dragon? The dragon is Satan. So Satan was at work in John's day. How? He's pushing the Roman Empire against God and the people of God, blaspheming God and putting the people of God to death. Satan is at work in her own day, moving in nations around the world to do the same sort of things in places like North Korea and China and Afghanistan and Nigeria, where the people of God are being mercilessly persecuted just for believing in Jesus. And Satan will be at work at the end of time, empowering a one world government and its antichrist leader to oppose God and persecute those who follow Jesus. And that makes perfect sense in light of the way that, that the Bible speaks about Satan's authority now in this age. So what is Satan known as? Well, he's called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, who blinds the eyes, the minds of non-believers, lest they should turn and find life in Christ. And in 1 John 5, verse 19, well, that tells us that the whole world is, current is, under the sway of the evil one. Now, all of this is very serious, isn't it? So how should we respond? How should we think about this? Well, brothers and sisters, we must remember, for as long as we live until Christ returns, we live on enemy ground. Another way of saying that is to say that this world is not our home. Another way of saying that is until we get to heaven, we're going to be the church militant, which means we're engaged in spiritual warfare against a very real enemy who is active and vicious and working. This can be very hard for Christians living in America to grasp. Why? Because we have had such an unusual experience of freedom of religion in this nation. And it's so easy for us to think it's always going to be this way. But friends, there's no guarantee that it's always going to be this way. Keep in mind, the Bible says Satan is the God of this world. You see, the present world has not yet become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Yes, Jesus reigns even now in heaven, but it's already not yet. The fullness has not yet come, but it is coming. Jesus will reign. But right now, God has granted Satan authority over the nations to work evil, and he is at work. It is very clear that he is very actively at work in our own nation. And we've talked about that some as we've gone through this book. So we need to respond wisely. Right? wisely. Uh, we need to be on our guard. The Bible tells us that to watch and pray is what we need to do as we live our lives because we are engaged in spiritual warfare. So there needs to be an alertness, a, a spiritual alertness, a spiritual prayerfulness against our enemy. We also need to remember that this is not our home, that we're just passing through. And that will help us in so many different ways. It will help us love money less. Uh, it will help us cling to things less if we remember that we can't keep any of this. It all belongs to the Lord and we're just passing through. And by the way, this is enemy territory. So we need to pass through carefully. Third, we also need to be marked by a continual gratitude. Why? That seems counterintuitive. Why gratitude? Well, the fact that this world isn't our home, it doesn't mean we don't have a home. No, we have a home. Our home is heaven, where Christ is. And that home cannot be taken from us, and we're on our way there. 
and we'll be there soon enough. We're not far from home. And so we should give thanks, right? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 to 29. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Of all people, we should be the most thankful because we have a home that will last forever. And praise God for that. That's almost worth an amen. Okay. It's hard to get an amen at Christ Fellowship. You know that, right? <laughs> Number two, the worship of the beast. Look at the second part of verse three and verse four. Many of us have seen the documentary footage of the way the Germans would worship Adolf Hitler uh, during the Third Reich. We've seen documentary footage of that in the 30s and 40s. Massive parades again are held. The people are lining the streets, praising him. There's the famous Nazi salute. Stadiums are filled with thousands of Germans who are celebrating his leadership, and even children get involved. Uh, one child in Germany uh, wrote this poem in the 1930s. The poem is entitled, In Praise of the Fuhrer. Fuhrer. We often heard, this child said, we often heard the sound of your voice and listened silently with folded hands as each word sank into our souls. We all know the day will come that frees us from need and compulsion. What is a year? What is a law that would restrain us? The pure faith that you have given us pulses through, guides our young lives. My Fuhrer, you alone are the way, the goal. Hitler was not content to just be a political leader. No, he would be worshipped. And the Bible teaches that at the end of time, the Antichrist is going to have the exact same impulse but on a massively larger scale. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war against it? So in the first part of verse 3, we saw that the, the beast is going to be wounded in some way. Uh, it's supposed to be a fatal wound. We're not entirely sure what that means, but it does seem best to understand that in some way we're talking about the capital A Antichrist himself, this end times leader. He's going to be fatally wounded, mortally wounded. It's possible that this is some kind of an assassination attempt. We don't know that. But verse 14 says he's wounded with a sword, but this mortal wound is suddenly healed. And the peoples of the earth are amazed by it. That's the response you see in verse 3, the second part. The response of the world, the whole world is amazed and followed the beast. The Greek word amazed there speaks of utter astonishment. Everyone is expecting the beast to die. Everyone is thinking that this is over. But then, just when they expect it to be over, healing. Some kind of healing, miraculous healing. We don't know how he's healed, but keep in mind, remember what we read earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 that the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's workings with every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders serving the lie, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. So perhaps the healing will be some kind of satanically empowered miracle, or perhaps it's going to be a satanic deception. We don't know. Either way, what we do know is the result of that is going to be that a worldwide amazement and a sudden desire to follow after the beast. This guy is the world leader we need. He's going to take us out of all of our problems. And by the way, no one can oppose him. Who can fight against the beast? And so they follow after him. They, they pledge their allegiance to him. But do you notice that they do more than follow the beast? 
Uh, do you notice that they worship? That's what you see next there in verse 4. They worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who's able to wage war against it? Now, this is startling again. After this miraculous miracle, what happens? Well, worship breaks out. But who are they worshiping? They're worshiping the dragon. And again, who is the dragon? The dragon is Satan. So this is talking about a worldwide worship of Satan. I don't know if it's a witting or knowing worship of Satan or an unwitting, unknowing worship of Satan. I don't know that. It is very clear that the whole earth will worship the beast, though, uh, whom Satan has given authority to rule. The world will be utterly convinced that he's the great world leader they need, and they'll be utterly convinced that no one will be able to wage war or conquer him in any way, and so they will gladly worship. Why? Because the political system will be too strong to resist. So I realized that a darker vision for the future of the world could not be painted than this. I realized that. But if our interpretation is correct, the day is coming when the entire world will be united in worship, and it will not be the worship of the true God. No, just as in the day of Babel, the last time there was a one-world government, the entire world will be united in opposition to the true God, and they'll be worshiping someone else. Here specifically, we know they'll be worshiping Satan and his Antichrist. Let me give you two applications before we move on. First, Christians need to beware of demagogues. Christians need to beware of demagogues. What's a demagogue? Well, a demagogue is a popular political leader whose persuasive speech and charismatic personality is so charming that the masses are just carried along with this leader and without thinking, follows along to do whatever the leader would have them do. So Adolf Hitler was a demagogue. He was quite popular. Uh, while he inherited the position, Kim Jong-un is a demagogue. And it's very clear from this passage that the Antichrist, when he comes, the man of lawlessness, will also be a demagogue when he appears upon the world stage. And particularly in times of social upheaval, there is a great danger that a demagogue will appear, a charismatic leader, who will make all kinds of wonderful promises. And people, because we like to be led, we have to understand the Bible speaks of us as what kind of animal? Sheep. Sheep like to be led. But you see, we're not supposed to be stupid sheep. We're supposed to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we're supposed to be discerning. And we're supposed to make sure that we do not wholeheartedly embrace any charismatic leader without truly assessing his character or his motivations or her character or her motivations. Again, we are to be discerning. Why? Because we live in an evil age. Brothers and sisters, ultimately, we are not to put our hope in any political leader. No matter how charismatic he or she may be, no matter what they may promise, and don't they always promise us the moon every two or four years, depending on the nature of the election? No, you see, no human political leader will ever bring heaven to earth except Jesus. That's Jesus' job. And so as the people of God who are called to be discerning, we need to be very watchful and very thoughtful. We should not wholeheartedly entrust ourselves to any political leader, but we should 
wholly trust in the Lord. Along the same lines, those who follow Jesus should avoid anything that looks like worship of a political leader. And that's easy to do in our culture. Why? Because the thought of God has been diminished greatly. And so it's so much more easy now for the masses of humanity to just kind of, because we are worshipers by nature, to attach the worship to the next great person who comes along, the next great strong leader. Personally, I think we saw some of this from the political left during the Obama years. And I think we saw some of this from the political right during the Trump years. And as those who follow Jesus, we're to avoid anything that looks like worship of any man. That's always out of place. That's always out of bounds. Why? Because we worship God alone. Well, you look at verse 3 and verse 4, you see the way that the whole world will one day worship the Antichrist. There's a third point, the rule of the beast. Look at verses 5 to 10. In verses 5 to 10, you see what the Antichrist rule is going to look like. It's going to be characterized by three things. It's going to be characterized by blasphemy, by persecution, and by absolute authority. Let's look at each one of those briefly. First, it's going to be characterized by blasphemy. Look at verses 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth to utter boast and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. So again, you see that time frame, 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years. In Daniel 7, time, times, half a time. If our interpretation is correct, this is referring to the final three and a half years of human history. And during that time, the Antichrist will be uttering blasphemy against God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 tells us what that blasphemy is going to be like. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God, an object of worship, so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is is God. How is the Antichrist going to blaspheme God? He's going to declare that he and he alone is God, and he and he alone is to be worshipped, and any rival God and any other political leader, anyone else is not to be worshipped, but he and he alone, and that is where a massive clash is going to happen between those who follow King Jesus and those who follow King Antichrist. And the next thing you see is that the Antichrist rule is going to be characterized by persecution Look at the first part of verse 7. And it was permitted, this is the beast, it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. The war that the Antichrist will rage against Christians will be absolutely brutal. It will be marked by imprisonments. It will be marked by, by martyrdom or by executions. The prophet Daniel put it this way in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. He shall speak words against the Most High. There's the blasphemy and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Now that word, wear out, is a strong word. That's a strong word. It's a strong description. It's like he's going to so brutalize Christians that they're going to be like a worn-out bag that's torn to bits, that's holy and thrown on the ground and absolutely useless. And third, the Antichrist rule is going to be characterized by absolute authority. Look at the second part of verse 7. To verse 8, it was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All those who live on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. Again, do you notice the universality of the language here? 
It's a universal language. In the book of Revelation, tribe, people, languages, and nations, it's used five different times, and it always refers to all of the inhabitants of the entire world. That's what it speaks of. It's a universal language. In other words, the empire of this Antichrist will be worldwide, and the vast majority of the earth, the Bible says, will follow after him and will gladly worship him. But you see in the second part of verse 8 that not everyone will worship him, right? You notice that? Uh, Those whose names weren't written in the book of life, they're going to worship the Antichrist. And that implies that those whose names were written in the book of life will not worship the Antichrist. There will be a, a segment of the world that will not follow the beast. They will not worship him as God. Who are they? Well, they are Christians. They're followers of Jesus. And so what will happen? They will suffer for not following the Antichrist. And that is why they need the exhortation of verse 9 and 10. So look at now what the Lord says through John to believers. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. What's the application? This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. This word of exhortation lets those who will be living at that time, the time of the Antichrist, know that their role will not be to resist or lead some kind of rebellion against the Antichrist. Their role will be to suffer well. It will be to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And who is Jesus? Well, he's the Lamb of God who was slain. So, following Jesus is costly, isn't it? It's costly. Now, there is so much. There's literally. So, I mean, sometimes as a pastor, you say there's so much we could say because you can only think of two things. But there's, there's literally so much that we could say from this section. But I'm just going to say two things. An observation and a question. Right? Sometimes you need comic relief a little, right? Observation, as blasphemous and violent as he will be, the Antichrist will still be under God's control. And you see that in this passage. Look at all of the passives, all of the passive verbs in this passage. Look at the first part of verse 5. The beast was given a mouth to utter boast and blasphemies. Can't create it for himself. Second part of verse 5, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. First part of verse 7, it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. Second part of verse 7, it was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Friends, the Antichrist is going to use everything he has given for evil purposes. He's going to do that. But do you notice that he doesn't create these things for himself? Ultimately, he receives them. The question is, who does he receive it from? Ultimately, the answer, friends, is God. The Antichrist can do nothing unless he receives permission and power to do so from God. And that may, some, may raise some questions, some why questions. Why will God permit this sort of thing at the end of times? Well, we don't know all of the whys, but we do know the who. We do know that God is good. We do know that God is faithful. We do know that God is true. We do know that God loves his people. 